Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Underneath the lantern by the barrack gate, darling, I remember the way you used to wait. Twas there that you whispered tenderly that you loved me. You'd always be my lily of the lamplight. My own Lily Marlene. Oh. Well, it's only one verse. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and he, didn't, three. and he didn't sing it either. So <laughs> I didn't know, sing it. I could have done verses. It. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I mean, that's the song of the desert, isn't it, really? It's the song of the desert and, and uh, a German song, of course, um, yeah. made famous by Marlene Dietrich. And I don't know yeah. if you've heard it recently, but she does do it magnificently. It's really worth listening to in full Deutsch. Um, yeah. And, you know, they always said it was kind of war without hate. Um, there was a sort of lack of anger there. And, and they were sort of all, there was a sense, I think, in quiet moments and lulls in the fighting that they're all in it together, that they're all sharing mm. a, a shared experience of fighting in an alien place. Yes. Um, and I was sort of thinking about, about what you were saying earlier on about kind of what was the desert like and, you know, the sores and the scorpions and all the rest of it. And um, sort of anecdotes came back to me because I remember. I was lucky enough to, to talk to a, a number of desert veterans. Yeah. And the first of them was my oldest mate, Giles. Just bear with me on this one. So Giles mm. is, uh, we, we've been kind of like besties since we were both six. Yeah. And his father was a lot older. He was born in 1906, although Giles was born in 1970. Whew. Yeah, he had tea with Thomas Hardy. Really? And um Yeah. In 1924. I mean, can you believe it? Oh, but anyway, he was, he was a, he was went in, his father, his family owned Bourne and Hollingsworth, a department store in Oxford Street mm. and, and lots of properties in London. Yeah. But Jim went to his father, Jim went into, um, went into the army and, and went into a medical service and worked in the RAMC and he was at Dunkirk and then he was in the Western Desert. And I remember there was this time where, where, where Giles' mum was away and his brother was away and it was just me and Giles yeah. and his dad, Jim, having supper one night and he started yeah. telling us some of his war stories. Yeah, and he told us of his time when they were in the in the Western Desert in in 1942, so in our period. And he said there was this really annoying guy, and every night he'd ask him to play cards, and every <laughs> night he'd go, "Oh, I have to." Yeah. Um, and eventually this guy could go, "Oh, one more rubber, come on, just one more, one more, one more," and he went, "Ah, oh, all right then." And while they were playing, they got strafed, and when he went back to his tent. Bullets were all across it, and he'd have turned in had he not my, played cards. My God. Yeah. And he said, and the weird thing is, he said, I've still got that sleeping bag. It's upstairs in the attic. It's covered in holes. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I'm, there were two people that, of all the people that I spoke to, uh, I would say from both sides, and, and Americans and British who fought in North Africa, and from the Air Force and from the Navy, mm. from the Army and, and, and so on. I suppose the two that really stand out for me is Albert Martin who was from Pinner, uh, joined up, um, 
got sent out there in 1940, um, serving with the Second Rifle Brigade, part of Seven Motor Brigade, part of the yeah. Desert Rats, Seventh yeah. Armored Division. Uh, and he was in a Bedford. That was what he did. He spent his time beetling around in a Bedford until he was retrained in the summer of 1942 on a, on six pounders. But he was beetling around in a Bedford, stripped down Bedford for the Gazala battles at the time of Tobruk and all the rest of it. And the other one was Sam Bradshaw. And Sam was from Wigan. Um, no, from Liverpool originally. He, mm. and, he, and he went off in 1940 and he didn't get home until late 1944. When he got yep. wounded for the second time, he was wounded really badly at City Reserve, and then wounded when he got shot in the neck in Italy. And he went back, and um, lovely bloke. And I remember him telling us about the importance of letters from home. And he said, he said, you know, one after another, everyone, you know, people who came out to the desert with wives and girlfriends, strong mm-hmm. girlfriends, and all the rest of it, one after one, they'd get the Dear John letter. He yeah. said it was just absolutely as guaranteed as as night falling, you know, following day, yeah. and all the rest of it. And he said, but there was this one guy in his, in his tank called Ronnie Dowie. And um, he said Ronnie had a really tight relationship with his wife. And, you know, we used to said he used to read out all the letters from home. And he said it was a bit like listening to kind of, you know, it's like Coronation Street. It was like yeah. his own soap opera. They'd sort of, you know, oh, I wonder how the sister's getting on. And, you know, what happened to her last week? And, you know, did, did your mum get that cosy yeah. knitted and all yeah. that sort of stuff? And it was one time where, where suddenly, you know, letters came in. Everyone was really excited. Ronnie was as excited as ever. And then, then he disappeared off and no one could see him. And they thought, oh, you know, we're all waiting for our latest dose of the soap opera from back home. And he couldn't, no one could find Ronnie and he found him. And uh, Sam went off to find him. And uh, Ronnie was all on his own and, and looking absolutely devastated by what happened, um, by, by this letter that he'd got. And he said, it's happened. He said, it's happened. She's left me. And he just couldn't believe it. God, and Sam said, "Well, you know, it's tough, isn't it? You know, we're out here all this time. You know, right back to where she'll come round. You know, you've got such a good thing going." Yeah. He went, "No, no, no, no. It's all over. It's finished." Next day, they went into action. Ronnie bought it. God, it's terrible. Just sort of inevitable. And he said it was this awful inevitability. And he's always felt that Ronnie kind of sacrificed himself. You know, mm. really sad. And, and and it struck me as as. I remember at the time just thinking, yeah, you, a lot was expected. Whether you were German, whether you're Italian, whether you're British, whoever you, whether you're Indian or Gurkha or whoever you, whoever you are, whether you're Maori, you know, fighting in North Africa, there's a lot. So much is expected of them, isn't it? Because you're going into this completely alien, alien environment. You, you know, there's certain places which feel more away from home than others, aren't there? Hmm. Well, and, and you know, a lot of these not... guys who are fighting in 1942, they've been away yeah. since 1939, 1940. Yeah. You know, and, and by the looks of it, what are you actually fighting over? Empty scrub. You know, it's yeah. not like it's not like you can say, well, at least we've at least we've taken calm, boys. You know, it's like yeah, it's this this strange to and fro um, that goes on. In the last episode, we had, we attempted to you know start at Tobruk, and then of course we had to do a bit of backstory, and. Uh, didn't yeah. do what we need to do to set up. We're going to do it now. We're going to do even it now. the first Battle of El Alamein. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. of course you know. Um, they're, they're, I mean, in many ways, it's like the Godfather. The sequel is better than the um, uh, original when it comes to Battle of El Alamein. <laughs> well, yeah. So should we look at what's happening at the end of June? Yes. So, yeah, yeah. so, so Tobruk falls on the twenty-first of June. Eighth Army is streaming back in what can only be said to be disarray. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting, actually, because for this, I've been looking back at Albert Martin's diary. He was fantastic because he, when I met him, um, his memory was still, you know, really, really sharp. 
Yeah. He knew exactly what he'd done. And he'd done a lot of it. He'd found his diary some years before. And he'd also gone to the archives and got out the battalion ward diary and he'd kind of pieced it all together. Yeah. And anyway, but he get it, but he but he let me photograph his original diary as well, which was sort of, you know, small, one of those small little diaries and pencil yeah. and all the rest of it. It was, it was just fantastic. Uh, and I've just been looking back over it and 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 it's interesting seeing what he's saying. So on the on the twenty first of June, he's going, you know, they're streaming back. He's going, Why? What's the strategy? Personally, yeah. I've had enough. I just want some peace and quiet. <laughs> And they assume he is he and his mates in Seventh Motor Brigade in in Second Rifle Brigade. They yeah. they assume they're going to make a stand at Solemn, you know, on right. the border. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when they get there and they cross the border on the twenty second of June, they go, "No, go on, keep going, keep going." They're still going on the twenty third of June when he writes in his diary, "When for heaven's sake are we going to stop running?" But you know, they um, and then one morning they wake up and they found themselves that they they're in the middle of a of a German Liga. In, a, in, a, in an Axis Panzerliga. It's only God. Get out of here quick. So they do. They get out. Um, and uh, when they're, they're on the way out, they made, made good their escape. And then his Bedford breaks down. I mean, you know, hardly surprising. I mean, the absolute punishment these yeah. things are getting in the desert with all that grit. I mean, you're effectively sandpapering engines to death. Mm, mm. And they then have to be towed. But then some Italian tanks appear on the scene and shoot at them and one of the Bedford gets shot up so they then have to abandon it and pile into another one and sort of keep going and by the 25th of June the Panzer Army which is obviously you know the, 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 the Africa Corps plus the Italians yeah. is lined up before the remnants of the 8th Army um, that have been fighting in, in Gazala and, and Tobruk at Merce Matru which is you know what is it kind of you know 30, 40 miles inside the border. And they just assume that's going to be it. But they're yep. told to make a sort of, you know, this, this is a kind of sort of stand and defend and let the others get back. And what Orkinlek has done is he's brought up the um, New Zealand division um, into that line. Yeah. Augmented by the remnants that have come back from the Gazala battle and the fall of Tobruk, which is... Not a lot. You know, you've got 10th yeah. Indian Brigade, they're in total disarray. 29th Indian Brigade, they've lost entirely one battalion, yeah. they're in disarray. Um, 50th Division, they've lost most of their equipment. And overall, they've got about 160 tanks left, which considering they started the battle with, you know, four times that, yeah, is not great. And is that, um, that's as much um, unreliable, unreliability as anything else, isn't it? Because it's a mixed force of tanks. There are grants, but it's, uh, Valentine's, Valentine's and and, yep. and, and uh, uh, other stuff, um, yep. and the Valentine. I mean, the Valentine's interesting because it because it's present kind of from you know when it when it arrives in uh, sort of very late 1940, isn't it? And it, it, yep. there are still Valentines going around in Northwest Europe in 1945 as yep. observer tanks and and and, and the, the manifestation as the as the archer with the 17 pounder, but they're not happy in the desert. And as many of these tanks are lost to mechanical failure as they are to enemy action, I think it's. The, Worth pointing that out. So it's it's, you know, your kit's letting you down. So you're as you're as likely to to be fleeing as anything. You know, it's it's a strange defeat. This as much as anything else, because it because yes, they have been given a bloody nose by Rommel, but actually, what happens is a, a desire to 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 bug out takes a grip, and the equipment's been letting you down. So you're not going to stick around, are you? The yo-yo of of fighting along the North African coast is that 
If the Germans go further west, they're better supplied. If 8th Army goes further east, it is better supplied. Its supply lines are shorter. But at this point, because Tobruk's fallen, Rommel's actually been given an, a you know a relative advantage for his normal position, hasn't he? Yeah, he has, because because the 8th Army that have been opposing him at, at, at Gazala are, you know, they're, they're spread to the four winds. They're kind of, yeah. they've lost all cohesion, but yeah. they've, the, the, the main units, you know, the two armor brigades of fourth and twenty second, um, you know, they're they're really really men down, tanks down, you know, entire artillery. Um, the, the South, not Cesars, for example, you know, on twenty five pounders at Knightsbridge, they're, they're destroyed. They're totally destroyed. You know, some of the men get away, but all the guns have gone. You know, so it's a really, it's in a terribly bad way, and they make a stand on the twenty seventh of June. Um, and Auchinleck orders all of them to, you know, whatever happens, don't become isolated, don't get pinned down, you know, do what you can. But, but, you know, if you need to cut and run, cut and run. But the New Zealand division get almost surrounded in, in very, very quick order. Freiburg gets wounded again, so he's out of the picture. Um, that's the day that Charles Upham wins his second VC. The, you know, he's he's a, he's a double VC winner in the Second World War. Yeah. Is that the one he, when he's already when he's broken his arm and he goes forward anyway? It's like being hit with a. I don't know. You know is it? I, I can't know. remember if that's the first or the second act. Uh, I think that might be the first act. I think it's the first. That's the first one where he's basically. It's the first at, one. He's at his yeah, all because he's still around in in yeah. July. Yeah, but but anyway, he wins his second one. That but they you know the New Zealanders who are kind of you know fresh to the battlefield they lose eight hundred casualties, just yeah. you know in a in a you know they rise up the front of the twenty sixth by by nightfall on the twenty seventh they're eight hundred men down which you know is is. On one level, is not a lot, but that's a battalion. Yeah. That's a battalion just gone. So that night, the 27th, 28th of June, they then fall back. But the rest of the of the 8th Army is already at the Alamein line. Hmm. So they're, they're already there. And the reason the Alamein line is chosen is because it does have a limit. It can't be outflanked. Now, you can get vehicles down in the Qatar, but that's because about 42, 45 miles south of the coast, there's a thing called yeah. the Qatar Depression. Yeah. and you can get a jeep down there, and you can get an individual vehicle down there and up there again. But it's a really quite steep escarpment, and it is deep. Yeah. I mean, it it, it yeah. really is. It's it's when you're on the edge of the Katara Depression, you know you're there. Yeah. What you can't do is you can't sweep round on mass with a kind of you know the Deutsche Afrika Corps. It's it's, just, impo- it's impossible. So it's impossible, but it's it's not it's not for for, for an armored formation. So you're guaranteed you're guaranteed that that flank. Can't be turned is the is the is the thing. Yes. If you take El Alamein, the, the railway station as your defensive pit position and posture, you, you've yes. sort of ruled out one of the options for the enemy to to get round you. In fact, you've put a stopper in the thing. And if it is a war of maneuver, which is what we talked about in the last episode, this is an opportunity to reduce the enemy's chances for maneuver. Exactly that. Remove and... Rommel's remove Rommel's mo from him. In fact. You know. Exactly, but at the same time, reduce your supply lines. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. increase your enemies. But Jim, w- one of the f- things we're doing here is we're making it. We're making a terrible mistake in telling the story of this battle in terms of who's being attrited and how, because this is an air battle. This is not a land battle. Well, it is. It is. But let me just finish where we're where we're at with with them. This above, is where as they think- fall back. Yeah, but this is where it often gets sort of where we're yes. you know the to and fro on the land you get hung up on. But in terms of actual yeah. attrition and damage done, it's an air battle. Yes. Anyway, so let on. me just let me just tell you very yeah, yeah. very briefly. So 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 twenty eighth of June, 29th of June, up to thirtieth, they are st- the remnants 
of the people that have made the stand at, at Mersamatru, including yeah. the New Zealand division, which has only newly arrived up, are all yeah. streaming back. You know, this is your, your, your track lines across the desert, yeah. clouds of dust and sand and grit and all the rest of it. Yeah. In hot pursuit are, are the um, 90th um, light division. They're mm. in the lead. Um, 30, um, you know, the 7th Motor Brigade, of which my friend Albert Martin was a part, you know, they're, they're beetling around in their bedfords trying to just stall them as much as they possibly can. In his diary entry for the 30th of June, he goes, all of us are fast becoming physical wrecks, living on the last reserves of strength, dredged up from goodness knows where. This is, you know, everyone is just, you know, yeah. this has been going on for over a month now. This has been going on for kind of, you know, 35 yeah. days. Yeah. Everyone's absolutely, completely knackered. Um and by that part time, Eighth Army has lost fifty percent of its fighting capacity. Yeah, you know, so it's in a really bad way. While Rommel has had lots and lots of losses too, but he's gained fifty percent material losses in terms of ammunition, in terms of yep. fuel dumps, which he's which he's managed to pick up at Tobruk, food rations, all those things of which he's incredibly short supply, which is yeah. what enables him to keep going. But you're absolutely right. The Panzer Army is also by this point not in fantastic shape, despite yeah. the advantages of, of the windfall that they get from taking to Brook. That is almost entirely down to the Desert Air Force and the RAF at large, yeah. the RAF Middle East, who are, in total contrast to 8th Army, are full of all the right people, have the right leaders, are organised, all know exactly what they want to do, um, are resolute, um, innovative, all those sort of things. And it just so happens that the Desert Air Force, which is at the front line, is led by two really, really remarkable people. The first is Air Vice Marshal um, Arthur Mary Cunningham, mm. and the second one is Air Commodore Tommy Elmhurst. And Tommy Elmhurst has been at the Air Ministry in 1940, been on part of the Joint Intelligence Committee, then gets posted, I think, to, to Turkey, and then gets recruited because he's known as a fantastic administrator. And Mary Cunningham is bristling with fantastic ideas and, and, and huge amounts of charisma. And everyone loves him. And he's a man of action. And he's pioneered that, you know, he's a, he's a fighter pilot from the First World War. Um, he's, uh, he's pioneered the Takaradi route in the 1920s, which is a route from West Africa up to Egypt, where you go from, from you know, Nigeria through to, uh, um, to Khartoum in Sudan and, and then up to Egypt. Yeah. He's pioneered that route. You know, he's he's a larger-than-life character, and he's absolutely fascinated by the possibilities of air power. He's a forward thinker. What he's not very good at is uh, paperwork, and that's <laughs> where this team really starts to gel. So Tommy Elmhurst takes over in February 19, come, comes as his as his number two in February 1942, and he's absolutely the business at organising stuff. And within a few weeks, Tommy Elmhurst has gone round, and he's gone, I, I can see what the problem is. You know, you've got you've got your squadron leaders as administrators. You don't want that. You want to organize, reorganize entirely all your your thing. You want you want squadrons moved into into wings, wings into groups, and the wings and the groups have to have their own administrative staff, so yeah. that the squadron leaders and the winkos, wing can commanders, with... can concentrate with the fighting. Yeah. And also, what you want is you want to have these landing grounds where a wing is, or, or preferably a group, is operating from the same place. So you can pull resources. You need to bring up maintenance units much closer to the front, and you need to have massive stockpiles, which will then give you the flexibility of these landing grounds to go forward or go backwards to leapfrog. And you can even leapfrog flight so that ace, ace, ace flight can go forward and attack 
while B flight is moving back to, you know, if you're having to retreat, you can go backwards to the next landing ground, which after all is just a big sort of cleared area in the desert. Then A flight can land back down and then that can follow, by which time B flight is ready to take off again. And if you're repeating that in all the squadrons and in all the wings, you're not depleted in your force. When he, when he, when Elmhurst comes in and uh, pitches all this, is he met with resistance or is it? No, is it, none no. at all. None at all. That's interesting. So Mary Cunningham goes, bring it on. Do what you need to do. You, you, you're my man. You know, I'm, I'm hearing you loud and clear. This, you, you sound like the man for me. This is exactly what we need. Get on with it. And also, don't forget there is this lull between yeah. the early part of 1942 and May the 26th. Yeah. So Cunningham then goes, okay, now we've got our new system in place. That's, that's getting in place. Let's make sure that the wing commanders and the squadron commanders are training up their men properly. Yeah, yeah. That they're training up their crews, that everyone knows exactly what they're going to do. And so particularly with the fighter pilots, he, he trains them in fighting, in dogfighting, but also in target training. Yeah. And rather than getting them doing um, firing practice after drones, uh, towed drones, he gets them to um, do sh- Yeah. where obviously people are moving around. The other thing they do is they rededicate their fighter aircraft to ground attack, don't they? Some of them. So, yeah, but but enough of them. And, yeah. and, and it's this idea that actually, because fight, fighter planes are, def- are a defensive weapon, as we've talked about um, yeah. in, in other circumstances. They're not, an, they're not an offensive weapon. And what you actually need to do is develop a, a method of air offensive rather than defensive. And that this sort of defensive mindset that goes with, that goes with fighter control has got to go out the window. And what you need is, you know, so hurry bombers come in. So you have hurricanes, right. are, hurricanes which are obsolete as, as a high-level fighter. Perfectly good, rugged aircraft for ground attack, um, which can, yeah, and this thing uh, whopping great cannons under each wing. Yeah, exactly, you can get great big tank busting cannons on them, or, or at least tank scaring, tank yep. screw scaring cannon, and they're readopting their assets to the situation rather than waiting for someone to send them a fighter bomber or for one yeah. to be developed. They're, they're cracking on with it themselves. And that's that 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 shows a sort of flexibility, um, a technical flexibility. With you know, aside from the organisational f- flexibility, there. That, you know they're prepared. They're prepared to also do that thing of well, what have we got? What are we allowed? What, what have we been given? Rather than just parking the hurricanes and thinking they're obsolete, which would be you know the sort of thing that would happen in other theatres, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's interesting also that that although Air Marshal Tedder, who is the Commander in Chief of the RAF in the Middle East, is constantly asking for Spitfires and has been since 1941, yeah. and and I think there's only 25 in action with the Desert Air Force at the beginning of May through yeah. to beginning of June. What Mary Cunningham realises is he's got to make use of what he's got. And yes. what he's got is he's got lots of hurricanes, he's got lots of Kitty Hawks. And yeah. Kitty Hawks are powered with the same Allison engine that the, the early Mustangs are. And yeah. just like the early Mustangs, they're no good over 10,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's not where they are. So he just thinks, okay, well, well let's not use them over 10,000 feet. Yeah. So he gives them a ceiling. He says, I don't want you flying over 10,000 feet. I want you to fly under 10,000 feet. And we're going to put bombs underneath you. And we're going to use you as ground attack aircraft as well. Yeah. And and you can do that and try and avoid tossing with, with 109s as much as you possibly can, you know, going and do ground attack stuff. Yeah. And they do. And, and you know, I, I remember one of the guys I, I got to know very well was Billy Drake. He was shot down over France in his hurricane in 1940. Um, managed to recover. Um, later flew, um, uh, was a, was an instructor, then got sent out to the desert and took command of 112 Squadron. And 112 Squadron is the shark squadron. You know, the yeah. Kitty Hawks with the huge yeah. great sharks. Famously, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very cool. And he was tough as hell was Billy. You know, he's really, 
tough. You know, anyone he wasn't up to, he'd just sack them. You know, <laughs> and, and he was all for camaraderie and a few beers and all this sort of stuff. But you were, he was kind of hone his guys into, yeah. sh- you know, absolutely hard, tough professionals. And he trained them incredibly hard. And what they did was they just did endless practicing of bombing and bombing targets because Mary Cunningham was very taken with the idea of dive bombing. But yeah. he also observed that, that Stukas were incredibly slow when they came out of the out of their dive and were were, were um, fishing ducks. Yeah. So he said, "Well, actually, you don't. What you don't you, you, dive bombing is cool, but you don't need to dive from from such steep heights. You can you can dive in in a shallow dive and come in, and you can get out quicker. And therefore, you're although you're coming in at a lower height, your chance of escape is much greater. Yeah. So he got them practicing and practicing and practicing, and they were pretty darn good, you know. And and they they were incredibly effective, and every single day of the Gazala battles, the, the mm. DAF is the Desert Air Force is just flying sortie after sortie after yep. sortie. Yeah, uh, which is really interesting because, in contrast, the, the Luftwaffe at this time is losing cohesion. Well, let's take a break and come back to the Luftwaffe and uh, find out exactly what's happening for them. We'll be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk About the Battle of El Alamein, uh, both battles. Uh, I, I prefer the sequel, um, uh, Godfather <laughs> 2 style. Um, Me too, if I'm honest. So the, so, yeah. so the, the Luftwaffe um, uh, 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 are suffering from, the f- suffering from the fact that actually these African battles are at the back of the queue, really. For, 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 um, yes, uh, well, yes and no. They're suffering from the problem that the Luftwaffe has been playing a very full-on role in the destruction of Malta. Yeah. Um, until the end of the first week of May. 
Yeah. Um, and they've been over there, whether you be a fighter planes, whether you be a Junkers 88, whether you be a Stuka, whatever. That's where you've been. You've been operating out of Sicily. And then they're mm. moved kind of lock, lock, stock and barrel over to North Africa to support Rommel's force. Yeah. But the commander in chief on, um, of the Luftwaffe in, in North Africa, in Libya, is a chap called uh, General von Baldau. Yeah. And Rommel and him do not get on at all. And, and there has never been the same conversation that there has been in the autumn of 1941. Yeah, where it has been decided that air commanders should decide all the targets. Yeah, yeah. the it's just it's just yeah, it's yeah. not doctrine. It's it's not yeah. it's not it just hasn't been sorted. It's not one thing or the other. Whereas Churchill has supported Tedder in decreeing that the air commanders have final say over what a target should be. Yeah. That an army I commander mean, can put in his pitch, but 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 it is up to the army commander. But that's that interesting. is not resolved between Rommel and von Baldwin. But that's interesting in itself because the Germans, after all, have the head start on the tactical application of air power. So it's interesting yes, that, that, that actually, in this respect, they, they seem to have got they seem to have got that wrong. They have out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, why why don't Rommel and von Valdau get on? Is it is it a standard uh, high ranking German general pissing contest, or is it that Rommel's fame is somehow a problem for? People have to deal with him because I mean we know a lot about Rommel, don't we? But what do we know about the people who? What, what do we know about the people around him who have to deal with him, and what do they think of him? You know, what what does von Valdau? Why why are they not getting getting along? They don't. They mainly don't get on because Rommel is constantly demanding von Valdau produce more than he can. Right. Von Valdau hasn't got the same administrative structure that Tommy Elmhurst has introduced for the Desert Air Force. Yeah. So so they're constantly under strength. The, the 109s don't have the same level of filter that, that a lot of the, um, the, the RAF planes have. And they're getting completely sandpapered to death. They're not very effective. And the whole culture of the Luftwaffe, particularly when it comes to fighter, fighter planes, is all about shooting down other fighters and, and protecting the ace and, you know, Hans-Joachim Marseille, you know, the great fighter race and all the rest. It's about crewing. You know, so there's, no, there's not that kind of, sense of a team effort in the same way it is it's just it's just a different there's a huge cultural gulf there's no iron team but there is an iron nazi is what you're saying that's exactly <laughs> what i'm saying that's exactly what i'm saying although well, you could never yeah. say that andy okin from marseille is a, was a nazi he certainly wasn't he just loved flying he just loved shooting down planes and got very <laughs> upset about flinging yeah but his desire to be a brilliant ace kind of rather overruled his Designed not to shoot, to shoot down people. So what what you have in essence is you've you've a sort of, you know, the, the, these are like mirror battles, aren't they? So that yes. the, just as the the battle on the land is going very badly for Eighth Army against the Africa Corps, hmm. so it, it's the other way round in exactly, the air. Exactly, exactly that, and, and, and it's probably, really weird, and and sort of for the same reasons that you know. Yes, exactly. Rommel's ability to make decisions, his his I'd lack be the boss of it, man. And be, be the boss man. man. His lack of indecision, his his ability to pick his moment. Although an awful lot of that is due to the fact that um, he's got some very very he's got some red hot intelligence telling him what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know he's got he's got wire and seam you know, and all the rest of it. Exactly seam bone listening to terrible British, absolutely diabolical British radio procedure. Yes, where everything's being transferred. I've shot a shoe. I'm returning to pavilion. Well, I mean, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, it's that well coded. I mean, it's. Really bad, really, really bad radio discipline. And Bonafellas, of course, in 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 uh, in Alexandria. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be talking to John about him, won't we? We'll be talking bit. to John about him later. Yeah, John McManus um, later on about him. But but it is it is all very 
you know, the, 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 these two battles sort of mirror each other. Each yeah, other. they do. And the peculiar thing is that, that is that for all of this, Eighth Army, the British position actually ends up the stronger at the at the end of all of this. Um, even though you know Rommel is decisive and is winning the land battle, his disadvantages. It's he's he's winning too much. It's that thing again. You know, it's that he's he 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 obviously his. I mean, his big problem is if you are in charge of the Africa Corps, where do you stop? What is your objective? Is it Alexandria? Really? Do you really yeah. think you can yeah. achieve yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. What can you actually pull off? Yeah. Um, you're not powerful. I see. Enough. I don't think Rommel's ever really thought this through. I think no, he I just think... thinks the British. I think that he's, he just thinks Eighth Army's going to collapse. And then it'll be a cakewalk and the, and the supplies will catch up, I think is what he yeah. thinks. And, no, but- and he's frustrated because the, the Luftwaffe never seemed to be able to support him in the same way that the RAF are supporting 8th Army. And he's yeah. like, well, they can do it. Why can't we do it? And, and yeah. there's a whole host of reasons. There's culture, there's sort of, you know, the fact that the Luftwaffe is already on its last legs because of the maximum effort that's been flying over Malta at a time where yeah. the Desert Air Force has been training yeah. and hasn't been flying quite so many offensive operations. Obviously, it's flying offensive operations, but not in the same league. It's not like maximum effort. So no. they're already knackered before they, they, they start on the 26th of May. Um, and, and, you know, they barely, by, you know, by the end of June, the Luftwaffe can barely fly 50% of the aircraft it's got. Yeah. Because it's a shortage of fuel, because shortage of parts, because the ground, because of mechanical failures, for whatever reason. And at the same time, Rommel's just going, I need you to hit this target. I need you to hit this target. And they just, they just, they just can't. You know, yeah. they're, they're flying a tenth of the sorties that the Desert Air Force is flying. And, and it's interesting, you know, if you look at, if you look at 112 Squadron as an example, Billy Drake's mob, you know, the Shark Squadron. So on the 21st of June, they move backwards to landing ground 75. On the 23rd of June, so two days later, A flight moves again backwards to the next one. And all the ground crew lift up all their stuff, put them into lorries, hurtle back they go. to the next landing ground where there are already supplies of fuel, ammunition, bombs, or everything they could possibly need, food, etc. Um, and then B flight the next day on the 21st June joins A flight back at the next next one. So that's how the the, 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 the leapfrogging goes. And at that time, 112 Squadron is also flying reconnaissance patrols, ground attack roles, escort and, and escort duty for the bombers. And on the 25th of June, having had this maximum effort for a month already, Mary Cunningham then goes, listen, guys, um, I know this is tough on you all, but the very future of Egypt and 8th Army is at stake. Yeah. We need to now do round-the-clock bombing. So all day, all night, without respite on the, on the pursuing Panzer Army. Yeah. So the bombers go in by night and they're escorted by albacores with flares to light the whole desert up, which which works an absolute treat. And of course you can do it because there's no mountains to run and worry about. Mm. There's, yeah. You know, there's no light no pollution. Cover. No trees to hide under. No. Yeah. Nothing. No forest, you just, forest you just to chuck your, you fire your flares, everything's lit up, boom. Oh, there's my target. Good night, Charlie. Um and, and then Boston's and, and other medium bombers and and you know what do you call it, bow fighters and stuff are operating yeah. by the day, along with the fighter planes. And 25th of June, 112 Squadron flies three escort missions and eight of its own bombing missions. God. And the following day, it breaks the record for the RAF in the war so far for the number of sorties flown by a regular fighter squadron in one day, which is 69. What? Yeah. 
God, those lads must have been very tired. Must have been. Yeah, they are absolutely exhausted. But that maximum effort saves saves Eighth Army from yeah. annihilation. Yeah, 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 it yeah. absolutely does. It's it, really, really interesting. I mean, it's interesting though, the parallels in the figures because you know Eighth Army's lost fifty percent of its fighting strength. The um, uh, Luftwaffe in North Africa has lost fifty, essentially lost fifty percent of its fighting strength. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the mirror image of each other. And this is a we know we know perfectly well this is a, an air war, um, uh, uh, the air component is crucially important. You can cede land, but control of the sky is a thing you really have to hang on to. So while all this is going on, Eighth Army is furiously preparing the situation at the Alamein line, and the Alamein line is is interesting because it's got this guitar depression, and and I've been lucky enough to go there twice, and it is it, it is incredible how different the land is once when you first go out there all you all you think is this is all flat desert because you know one is so used to looking at kind of green hills and woods and you know rivers and the sea and everything else whereas when you drive from cairo or from alex down the road to the alamein position you know what you're seeing is just desert and 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 it's just it's it's all got the same you know depending on the time of day it's just got the same kind of one-toned colour and, you know, it, it just looks really, really flat. And it's not until you pick over it really carefully that you suddenly start to realise that actually it's quite different. So near the coast, for example, it's very sandy. We're kind of sort of first 10 miles in from the coast. Beautiful Mediterranean sea line. Um, you, it, it's quite sandy, lots of vetch about, lots of little bushes, little sort of stubs of sort of, you know, grey-green all over the place. And it's really brittle and tough. You know, it would scratch your legs if you, if you walk through it. And then you get to Alamein itself, which is now, you know, a, a decent-sized town. I mean, not a big town by any stretch of imagination, but it's sort of, you know, half decent. But the, the original train halt is still there, and it's, it's a kind of flat-roofed, one-storey, two-roomed building, which is just a halt. And, nothing, and, and, and that's it. And the tracks go past. And then there are a few other buildings round about. There was a building on the north coast where, you know, just a little bit further to the north, um, which ends up being later on in the battle, a kind of you know a, a kind of major joint hospital actually, both German medics and British medics. And then, then as you go down, you 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 the whole thing about the there's lots of talk about the Ruwaisat Ridge, the Alam Halfa Ridge, the Alam Nile Ridge, the the Meteoraya Ridge. These are you, you don't even know you're on them until you're at the top of them. It's just you can't see very far. You suddenly realise. And then suddenly you can see for miles again. So that's that's when you're on top of it. You know, something like the Mitterai Ridge is only like 30 metres above sea level. So hillocks. What, Not would, really, because it's a re- they're really long. They're, they're long and narrow. They're about, you know, Mitterai Ridge is about 350 metres wide. Right. You know. So they're and, sort, of like rip, and, sort of like ripples in the, in the desert. It's really, really low. So obviously, if you're if you're at the base of it on the north side and you're being attacked from the south side, for example, you wouldn't be able to see a tank from the other side, but you're still you would still feel incredibly exposed. You, you to you, it would feel like this is the flattest place on earth. I mean, we're talking, you know, the slope at Lord's Cricket Ground it doesn't really feel very very much at all. And what's interesting, by the time you get onto these ridges, though, it's it's stony ground again. It, it's it's not as sandy. The vetch has gone. It's it's all stones, and you pick up a handful of stones, and there's your fossilized seashells, and just just everywhere. 
And then it runs down. There's a kind of 15 mile stretch to, to Alum Nile and Alum Halfa. And that takes you about halfway down the line. And then south of Alum Halfa, it suddenly just drops into this really, really weird kind of lunar landscape where there's lots and lots of crannies and little escarpments. And sometimes these escarpments might be, might be three foot. Sometimes they might be 15 foot. You know, but you can't just drive vehicles all over them. And then that weird bit sort of flattens out again. And then right at the end of the line, you've got the Hemimat, which is this weird kind of horned thing that looks like something out of Monument Valley and a kind of, you know, John, John Wayne Western that just sits at the bottom. And you can clamber up. That's where the Italians were. And then beyond that, a kind of, you know, not very, very far is the edge of the Guitar Depression. And it's, it's, it's a weird landscape. And in a way, it's weird on one level that you would you put so much emphasis onto the north of the line, which is where so much of the fighting happened, because that's where the, the soil is the thinnest, and where you've got this vetch, where you've got the sand, and obviously the sand is is most likely to get ground into dust and fade into talcum powder, and, and be the most ob- obstructive. Yeah, but that's where the road is, right? That's where the road is. That's where the yeah the Via Belbao. That's a, um, that. Um, um, and that is where the railway is. Railway lines. And in the end, though, in the end, you absolutely have to control those. There, there can't, can't be any two ways about it. So the, the Alamein line is established by the 1st of July. So this is so from the basically the, within the, the 10 days of the fall of Tobruk, this calamitous collapse, although accompanied by highly effective attriting of the, of the Africa Corps by the yeah. RAF, yeah. the Desert Air Force. Um, and it's again. That's also a Duke force, isn't it? That's got South African Air Force in it. Yeah, 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 well, absolutely. It? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a that's a, that's a sort of melange as well. It's totally Duke. So on the first of July, Rommel um, makes his first attack. Attacks yes, the Alamein line, but we don't know what you know. And everyone is, and and this is what prompts the flat, the flat, because the flat, because Lord Lord Hawhaw warns. You know, I'm radioing that the, the Cairo is going to be flattened by 200 bombers. And then Admiral Harwood, who's the commander in chief of the Mediterranean, starts moving his ships out of Alex. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. These told twin him to do things. That? The intelligence that, that Rommel is about to attack again, and yeah. he seems unstoppable if you're living in Cairo, and the Navy's moving out, so it must be bad. It's Everyone very starts to panic. Poor timing of, by the Navy there, I think. Yeah, not very good. It's not their it's, greatest I, moment. Yeah, well, not what, what's moment gone on there? I don't know. I mean, don't know. And and things are febrile in in uh, Cairo and Alex anyway, aren't they? It's the they it's the truth. Yes, they absolutely are. And there's, there's lots and lots of base wallers. There's um, GHQ is 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 is, is completely swollen. Um, too many people having kind of sundowners on the veranda at Shepherd's Hotel. Um, it's all a bit too slack. It's all a bit too lack. And, and scheming suddenly- and. Ca- Scheming and counter scheming, yeah, and, and conniving uh, and all that kind of stuff. Private armies and all that sort of, all that. Every, all that. Yeah. And yeah. on the first of July, that same day that Admiral Harwood starts moving his ships, that Rommel attacks on the Alamein line, GHQ gets put under uh, twelve hours' notice. Streets are starting to be jammed with crowds. There's an absolute panic going on. People are burning papers left, right, and centre, and everyone thinks this is the end, and that kind of you know Mussolini and Rommel are going to be in any minute. And Cecil Beaton, the photographer, the royal photographer, is there. He's been my next door neighbour when I was first growing up here in um, in the Chalk Valley. Yeah. Um, and, and his diary is fascinating. And he says, "I long to get shot of this awful sick feeling in the upper stomach." Cairo was in a dreadful state of unrest. The streets jammed with terrific crowds outside the banks and the headquarters. 
everyone was burning secret papers. The effect was horrible. And then, yeah, you know, it's just, it's panic all round. The famous war correspondent, Alan Moorhead, who's writing for the Daily Express, he says, a thin mist of smoke hung over the British embassy by the Nile and the sprawling blocks of GHQ. The smell of a burning rag hung over the whole building. And that is where we are leaving this episode. Yes, absolutely. The British Imperial Forces, Duke Forces, on the brink in North Africa. Yeah. Or are they? Or are they? Um, uh, will they hold the line? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, we know the outcome, but that, 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 that's very much a moment that appears to be a knife edge. Well, it does, I think. And I think it also reflects what is going on at the, the highest levels within 8th Army as well. You know, you've got 13 Corps commanders straight for Gott, who is openly defeatist, saying, I don't, I don't think we can hold them here. You've got Orkinlek telling um, General Brooke, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, that, that, that the only All offensive weapon he has is the RF. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Withdrawal plans are being prepared, actively prepared. For Alexandria, Cairo, the Canal Zone, you know, they're actively thinking, what do we do with this, this crumble? Yeah, morale is not good. Confidence is low. How are they ever going to get out of this scrape? And on the face of it, the army is the army is pretty much defeated. Yeah. Well, join us for our next episode, where uh, in uh, question of sport, what happened next? Style, we will <laughs> <laughs> uh, explain what happens next. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.